all right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Yay! Yay! We're back after a long, uh, restful sleep. We are emerging from our coffins. Back. We have gone to the afterlife for a moment, and we are back from the dead, resurrecting the podcast. So I'll uh, bring you another wonderful episode today. Today's hosts are the wonderful Teresa Yay! in California and yes. Tina, who's me in Nevada. Yay! Patrick, Patrick in the back with a cat on his lap. Uh, yeah, Josh off in the distance somewhere, <laughs> possibly in the other room, also in California. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we took a break for a while. Now we're back because apparently we have listeners for this podcast. And uh, I felt incredible guilt. <laughs> and uh, now we're back to bring more stuff about Hollywood. And it's interesting, seedy, scary, spooky, uh, strange history, legacy, yes. and whatnot. And... So today's episode is about uh, women and I would say women in computer science. Mm -hmm. uh, we are talking about one woman who was a Hollywood actress, which is why I felt that it was appropriate for this um, episode. And then I'm talking about who's uh, the woman who is known as the first female computer programmer. And their, I don't know, their legacies, I guess, are similar. Um, but um, I just felt like it would be really fun to talk about women in computer science because, you know, most scientific things are believed to be a, a patriarchy, you know, and it's not, <laughs> yeah. necessarily, not necessarily true. Um, but yeah. Um, so uh, I think I'll have you go first yeah. today because you're talking about the Hollywood actors and then I will go second with my person. Um, and then Pat, you're going to go third, right? With your story. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. He's, he's got nothing. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's got the cat. Yeah, it's true. Oh, he, uh, did, he did it. Story, yeah. <laughs> the man is taking a back seat for this one, which is appropriate. <laughs> Uh, for this episode, so, so. yeah, <laughs> girl power. No, as the Spice Girls used to say, <laughs> girl power. <laughs> um, so, what do you got for us today? So, I am going to be talking about the very beautiful Hedy Lamar. Uh, yes, Hedy. Uh, oh my gosh, so much information, and I scribbled so many notes everywhere, so just bear with me, but <laughs> I, I need to take my notes the old-fashioned way. I'm just writing them down, but um, no, uh, Hedy Lamar, so interesting, and I didn't really know a whole lot about her specifically. I knew, like, the general broad stuff, but... <laughs> broad get it because she's lady no 
<laughs> I knew the general stuff, but just not the specific details. But I would love to tell you all about this really fascinating uh, woman. And it gets really crazy in some parts. So as you can imagine with anyone who works in Hollywood, what a shocker. But uh, <laughs> Hedy Lamar. Uh, as she was known on the big screen, she was actually born Hedwig Ava Maria Kiesler. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and she was born on November 9th, 1914. She was uh, Austrian born, uh, from Vienna, Austria. And, uh, she was, uh, she was from a Jewish family background. Um, she would later reject her entire upbringing in that sense, uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but those are her basic facts. Um, she was an American film actress and inventor. And the inventor part is the really intriguing part of her, which I'll get into, but uh, she was married and divorced quite a few times, six times to be exact. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. She's, yeah. She's up there with Elizabeth Taylor almost, who I think probably holds the record, but um, she had three children. Uh, and it just, it's just very, so much interesting stuff about her. Her early film career. She actually started in her teenage years in Europe, and she starred in a film called Ecstasy. You heard that right, Ecstasy, in 1933, in what was then known as Czechoslovakia. She was just 18 years old only, and at the time, the film was very controversial due to the use of nudity in the film, uh, because there was a sex scene and she even did a scene where she simulated an orgasm. So that was a big deal. And especially at that time, uh, it that's why it was so controversial, obviously. You can imagine. I mean, nowadays that's laughable <laughs> in terms of controversy in the movies. Uh you have to go a lot farther than that. But at the time, you know, she really got kind of labeled for that in not so great a way. Let's put a let's put more. She got labeled in kind of a negative light for a while, um, unfairly, of course, um, because as far as I know, you know, the film in Europe, uh, from what I read, was pretty successful everywhere except for Germany. And the United States, where it was banned in both of those countries. So, um, but, you know, that was her early career. Um, and things would get better for her uh, because, because she would then move to Hollywood not long after that. Um, she was in a marriage with a man, her first husband, um, Fritz Mandel. And I'll talk about him in a, just a bit, but uh, she was with him at the time and she needed to get away from that marriage. So 
she was traveling to London and she actually had a chance meeting with none other than Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM Studios at the time. And of course, you know, he was notorious for finding the, all the big stars of the day. Judy Garland comes to mind later. But he was um, in Europe scouting for European talent. And so he met Hetty and he uh, would offer her a, a, a film contract. And so she decided to take it. And so she moved to Hollywood and thus began the birth of her film career. So uh, three of the biggest movies she was in uh, were Algiers, which was her first movie. That was in 1938. And uh, she was starring opposite Charles Boyer. Uh, the second big film she was in was Boomtown in 1940. And that was starring Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Claudette Colbert. And the most successful film that she was in in her career was in 1949. And that's when she did uh, Samson and Delilah. And that film, she was starring uh, opposite Victor Mature. And that film was uh, a Cecil B. DeMille film. And it actually won two Oscars that year. Um, so it was, you know, an all-around success. Uh, unfortunately for Hetty, she would never have um, another big success like that. So that was her last one. But I guess, you know, you could say she went out with a bang. So that's good. Um, <laughs> uh, now, the most interesting part of Hetty's life, I think, is the fact that she was just this kind of inventor extraordinaire. Um, at the start of World War II, Hetty and her friend, who was a composer, his name was George Amphiel, they developed a system using radio waves and signals with what was called spread, what is called spread spectrum and frequency hopping technology um, in an effort to defeat the threat of jamming, signal jamming by the Axis powers at the time, which were Germany, Italy, and Japan. So um, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me because when I was reading over all of this, I was like, wow, I feel like some of this I'm not absorbing because I'm not programmed in that way. <laughs> so I was like, this kind of goes a little bit over my head, but not too much. <laughs> I, felt I felt the same way when I'm going to talk about my person. Okay. I felt, I felt exactly the same way. Okay, There's a good. lot of terminology I'm going to be using that I am just going to say the words and hope that someone understands what I'm talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Same. Same. <laughs> Um, so I'm trying to explain it as, as well as I understand it, but, um, that is, you know, what she was interested in. She was really, really interested in, um, not just what she would become forever known for, which was this, um, spread spectrum and frequency hopping technology invention, but she just invented all kinds of things, you know? 
she even invented, uh, you know, and this is all just, you know, on her own whim in her spare time, she was trying to invent uh, a tablet that would dissolve in water and become a cola, essentially. So, you know, kind of hoping for it to become like Coke or something like that. But she said she tried it herself and it tasted like Alka-Seltzer. So we had something uh, like that in like the early 90s or late 90s. I want to say something like that existed, but it didn't catch on either because it was not. Yeah, I guess maybe it's just not that maybe not that good of a model to have a a drink, maybe. Uh, But yeah, that's that's what she's into inventing. And um, so she, you know, came up with this very, um, I mean, this was technology at the time that was not in use at all. And no one even, you know, knew of it, heard of it. Um, And they actually, the two of them, um, they presented this to the government, essentially, to the U.S. government. And the U.S. Navy, they tried to get the attention for them because, um, let's see if I can, <laughs> let me look over my notes again so I can see if I'm I'm getting this right. So yeah, she understood that there were radio-controlled torpedoes in, in World War II, right? That they could be, they could be jammed, the frequencies, and they could be set off course. So with her frequency hopping signal, they could not be tracked or jammed. So essentially it was very effective strategy, you know, like I said before, in keeping um, any kind of threat from the US uh, during the war so they couldn't receive certain certain signals, they couldn't decode certain messages. So the US Navy, they didn't adopt this technology until much later, until the 1960s, 1962 to be exact, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. Then they finally utilized an updated version of the technology. But at the time, oh, excuse me, Ooh, excuse me, at the time they, um, they were not receptive, unfortunately, to any outside inventions. <laughs> they just wanted everything coming from within which I guess kind of makes sense, but, um, you know, they would, they would use the technology eventually. So (laughs) they must've thought, you know, that it was somehow valuable, but they said, no, thank you at the time, even though, um, Hetty and her friend, George Amphiel, they worked so hard, they actually got a patent for the invention. Um, and the patent would unfortunately, expire around the same time that it was actually being put into use. So, <laughs> you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the, the outcome she was expecting, I'm sure. But um, that's the way it happened. But the, the, the biggest thing out of all of this technology was that the principles of their work would eventually lead us into uh, the stuff that we use today, like Bluetooth and GPS technology. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I use GPS all the time. So 
it's mm-hmm. hard it's hard not to think about using it nowadays right we we kind of rely on it to get us everywhere so um you know it's kind of really cool to think that uh, a lot of the early work that Hedy Lamar and George Amfield did would lead to these kind of discoveries and this kind of technology. So um, in addition to that, it was, uh, it was also similar to methods that were used in CDMA and Wi-Fi. Well, we all know Wi-Fi, of course. <laughs> Everyone depends on Wi-Fi nowadays. Um, and CDMA... I did have to look into because (laughs) not knowing what that is, um, it stands for code division, multiple access. So, you know, what that means essentially is that there are several transmitters that can send information simultaneously over a single communication channel so that several users can share frequencies, um, CDMA uses the spread spectrum technology. Now, I don't know if I sounded any kind of intelligent when I just said that, but I hope I did. (laughs) It sounded good to me. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, that is probably (laughs) the only description that I have on it. Um, But, you know, that it, it was obviously a huge deal. Um, And the saddest part of it, like I said before, was that, um, first of all, you know, the government, the Navy outright rejected the technology back in, um, you know, about, it was in the 1950s when they, uh, or sorry, it was earlier than that. Yeah. When they, when they pitched the idea to them, first of all, um, but they weren't going for it. And then eventually they went for it. So they they figured, okay, yeah, well, she did know something after all. Yeah, she did. She tried to tell you. <laughs> uh, but Lamar and Amphiel were inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. So that was quite a long time after both of them had already passed. But at least they still got an induction. Um, they actually got recognized a little bit earlier too. In 1997, they earned um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation Pioneer Award. So they were eventually recognized. And like I said, you know, we all use a version of the technology that they came up with. So, you know, that's pretty mind blowing in and of itself. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that was just, you know, huge. I mean, Hetty was known world round as just this extraordinary beauty and, you know, star of, of the big screen. But she was not, she definitely was not just another pretty face. You know, she, she, had, she had big brains to back it up and uh, genius brains. So it's pretty impressive. Um, so I want to talk a little bit now about her first husband, who I said his name was, um, Fritz Mandel, uh, or Friedrich Mandel, and he was her first husband. And like I said, she had to get away from this 
marriage because it just was not working out for her anymore. Um, but uh, Fritz was an Austrian military arms merchant, and he was also a munitions manufacturer. But he did all of this for the Nazis in Nazi Germany. No! Yes. <laughs> Yes. No. <laughs> yes. Why? <laughs> and just, I mean, uh, I don't think irony is the right term for it, but I told you that Hetty, um, in her family, she was Jewish, and Fritz was Jewish through his father. So they were both Jewish, and Fritz is, you know, dealing with Nazis. Um, and and Hetty had to entertain them in her home, according to her. So uh, they got together because, you know, Fritz was very wealthy. And she said that he was charming. She was kind of fascinated with him. But um, at the time that they got married, uh, he was 33 years old and she was 18. So a bit of a difference at that point in time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, getting back to uh, Fritz's, you know, terrible ties, he had ties with both Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. So, you know, I mean, this was, <laughs> had to be at least an uns unsettling environment for Hetty. At best, just, uh, you know, a nightmare that she had to escape from, uh, and she did, thank goodness. But um, so, yeah, they, they married, she married him when she was 18, and he just uh, proceeded to show himself as being very controlling in the marriage and the relationship. And um, she had an autobiography uh, that she she has an autobiography that's called Ecstasy and Me, and in it she would describe him as extremely controlling, and he, uh, you know, you could uh, you could guess he hated her simulated orgasm scene in Ecstasy, so he tried outright basically to keep her from further pursuing her acting career. He would you know, threaten her, try to threaten her, say that he was going to destroy every copy he could find of ecstasy and, you know, that he just, he just didn't, he was kind of abusive to her verbally. And um, so, you know, after a while and on top of the Nazi thing, she was like, yeah, I have to get out of this situation. So, um yeah, and like I said before, uh, Hetty said that both dictators, both Mussolini and Hitler, were entertained in her home, but uh, it's unlikely that Hitler was entertained in her home because they were both Jewish. So that part is probably not as believable, but then I found something else that said that... Uh, because they were both Jewish, they sent lower ranking Nazi officials to the home, to their home, 
because it would be better for them to be in their home than to be seen in public. So, um, but she claims, you know, that, that they came to her house, which is just terrifying. So I'm not sure what actually happened, but (laughs) that's what I found. Um, So yeah, I did say that she felt imprisoned. So she, she literally fled to Paris, France, to escape her marriage. And, you know, soon after that was when she uh, was traveling to London and then she met Louis B. Mayer, which started her Hollywood American film career. Um, So things did turn around for her in that sense, luckily. Excuse me. Um, And on the subject of beauty, uh, this was the other part to Hetty that was both completely um, appealing to people, but also kind of, um, I don't know, it put her in another category, I should say. And um, she kind of got maybe a little bit pigeonholed unfairly, but um, I'll, I'll get into it. So in 1938, when uh, Louis B. Mayer gave her the contract and she starred in Algiers, he started to promote Heidi in Hollywood as, quote, the world's most beautiful woman. And, you know, you all you have to do is Google an image of her and you can see that she is quite beautiful. She's striking. You know, she's she's got very um, dark hair. She has these green eyes, beautiful, and, you know, what they would describe as translucent skin, you know, so she's very, very striking. So I could see why they would want her in Hollywood, definitely, especially at that time. Um, In her first film that she did, Algiers, it was said when her face first appeared on screen that, quote, everyone gasped. Lamar's beauty literally took one's breath away. That's how one viewer described uh, looking at her. Um, but then also, like I said, she was typecast as a glamorous seductress of exotic origin. And that would be really apparent when she did a film called White Cargo in 1942. And her character's name was uh, Tondaleo. And Tondaleo was essentially just uh, <laughs> your seductive native girl. And it was a huge hit. The movie was a huge hit. But it really bored Hedy Lamar as an actress. And she really wanted, she was very interested in acting because she, when she was growing up, that's what she studied. You know, she, she was serious about it. So this wasn't, of course, her only role that she was in, but, you know, she didn't want to be just the, the decorative female, you know, the decorative kind of wall, wall hanging. I don't know what I would call it, but (laughs) she has, she has this quote that, that, um, is just perfect. And uh, a lot of people, um, have kind of made different, um, creative things just based on this one quote from her. So 
she was quoted as saying, any girl can be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That was a direct quote from Hedy Lamarr about her ideas in the film industry in Hollywood. (laughs) So, you know, she's probably not wrong, but uh, (laughs) it's very on point quote, and I think it still applies. But um, it was just pretty, pretty awesome of her that she could, you know, uh, make that kind of statement then. Uh, Because we don't really hear about it too much. But if you know about her, then you will hear about it. Um, So that was kind of, you know, those were kind of all really the best parts of her life there. Um, But in her later years, things would get a little bit weird. Let's just put it that way. Um, So (laughs) I termed this section suing, shoplifting, and seclusion. (laughs) So she, um, she kind of went on a suing streak later in her life. Uh, First, she sued the publishers of her autobiography, Ecstasy and Me, um, because Ecstasy and Me was actually written by a ghostwriter. So it wasn't really an autobiography in that sense because she did not write it. Um, But she claimed that the ghostwriter came up with incredibly false details of her life. And, you know, she, she was refuting that. Um, But then in turn, when she made that suit, she was then countersued by a magazine author who claimed that that book plagiarized material from an article that he wrote in a 1965 um, piece for the Screen Facts magazine. So she got sued by him. (laughs) And then she actually sued Warner Brothers for the almost use, quote unquote, the almost use of her name and her rights to privacy And that would be in the Mel Brooks film, Blazing Saddles. So if anybody out there has seen Blazing Saddles, you'll know that there is a character that went by the name of Hedley Lamar. Not Hedy, Hedley. (laughs) So, um, but she was very upset about this. She did not want her name or her, her, you know, as she said, her rights to privacy were being infringed upon, she felt. So she decided to sue them for an incredible amount. It was like, you know, at the time, $10 million or something like that. Um, The studio did settle out of court, not for that amount. (laughs) Um, But they also issued an apology to her for uh, almost using her name. And Mel Brooks himself uh, went on the record as saying, quote, she never got the joke. So, you know, I mean, it was a parody of her, but apparently she didn't think it was in good good taste and she was upset by it. So that's what happened. But 
it's just kind of funny because, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're being parodied, it's kind of an honor. But yeah. at, the, at the same time, you know, with the wrong maybe intent or maybe if yeah. the sense of humor is not quite there, yeah, it might. I guess you could see it as offensive. So, well, she certainly did. Anyway, that wasn't the only person she sued. <laughs> she also sued Corel Draw uh, uh, for a Corel drawn image of herself in 1997. And it actually won image of the year, I think the year before in 1996. Um, so she said, you know, they don't, they didn't have the rights to use her image and they countersued saying that um, it wasn't, you know, that she didn't own those rights for this specific picture um, that they were using. So um, that actually got settled in 1998. Um, so that was the end of her suits. Uh as far as I know, for a while. Um, but after the suits came the shoplifting. So in 1966, uh, or I guess that was slightly before, but 1966, she was arrested in LA for shoplifting. The charges were dropped. And then later in 1991, she was also arrested again for shoplifting, but this time in Florida. And this is, you know, I don't know, I would be embarrassed, but she was arrested for um, stealing $21.48 worth of laxatives and eye drops. Yeah. So at that time, she pleaded no contest and the charges were dropped. But it would just, you know, at that point, after the 1991 uh, you know, shoplifting thing, things would, you know, definitely go down for her. Uh, unfortunately, she, and this is the seclusion part, you know, her, she was getting much older, of course, and um, her eyesight started to fail, which I guess is why she had to steal the eye drops. But um, she, <laughs> she tried to get you know, back into acting, she was offered things. She was offered things constantly, um, but nothing piqued her interest. And um, I, it just never happened for her again. She did her last film uh, in, I believe it was 1958. Um, and after that, you know, she did a smattering of things here and there, like she might have done a cameo or two, but really she just kind of pulled herself into a deep seclusion. And it was said that at that point, when she lived in Florida, she would only talk to others, even her close friends and family by telephone, that she had no desire to see anybody in person. So, you know, I said she had three children, she was close, closer to two of the children, and uh, she still wouldn't see them. She only wanted to to talk to them on the phone. Like they said she talked, she could talk for six to seven hours a day on the phone, but that she would not want to um, actually see anyone in person. 
there's actually a documentary that was um, released in 2004, and it's called Calling Hedy Lamar. And it features her children, Anthony Loder and Denise Loder DeLuca. Um, so if you're more interested in finding out about the, uh, the deep seclusion at the end of Hedy's life, um, check out that documentary. Um, so Hedy did die on January 19th, 2000 in Castleberry, Florida which is uh, close to Orlando, and she died of heart disease. Her son, Anthony, spread her ashes in Austria's Vienna Woods, which was her last wishes. And there is a, there, in 2014, there is a memorial to her that was, um, that was revealed in Vienna's Central Cemetery. So um, on the last note I want to leave you with a little bit of pop culture um, stuff. Well, before I get into the pop culture, there is a 2017 documentary that also will uh, detail her story very well. And it's called Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story. And it was actually produced by Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite actresses, another one. Um, so yeah, check that one out too. Um, but the pop culture references, and I actually knew, um, I knew one of these. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, I know that one. Um, and this is probably my favorite one. So I'll tell it first. In Little Shop of Horrors, the film version in the 1986 version with, uh, you know, Rick Moranis and Steve mm -hmm. Martin, etc. So when it's, you know, towards the end of the film and they're doing Feed Me uh, with Audrey too, and he's all scary and the, um, you know, he's trying to <laughs> basically tell Seymour if he doesn't do what he's going to do, he's going to kill him. But he tells Seymour he can get him anything he wants, including, quote, a date with Hedy Lamar. And it's just it's just funny because the, the line always sticks out. The lyrics always stick out in my mind. So when I was researching her, that was the first thing I thought of because he's like, let's see, how does it go? He's like, would you like a Cadillac car or a guest shot on jackpot? How about a date with Hedy Lamar? You're going to get it if you want it, baby. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's just funny. And I love Little Shop of Horrors. So. And I just watched it recently, so just just kind of randomly. So anyway, that's my favorite pop culture reference with Hetty, even though it kind of has nothing to do with her in a way. But yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of does because, like, she's like a glamorous actress, beautiful, gorgeous. So that makes sense to me that, that Audrey, too, would, would say that. Um, but then uh, a couple other ones was that I didn't know and that is very interesting was that um, Hetty was apparently uh, the original inspiration for the face behind Catwoman and Snow White. So, oh, wow. yeah, I was like, wow, really? Okay. So, um, so yeah. So if you're more interested into that, you know, you can look into that too. 
Um, it was said that um, Anne Hathaway, when she was working on her role as Catwoman in, you know, I think it was The Dark Knight Rises, uh, uh, the Batman series, the newer one. Um, she said that she found that out, that factoid that I just shared with everyone, and that that kind of um, influenced her to play Catwoman a certain way. So it's pretty cool, you know, um, some background stuff. But um, And then also, if you want a really, really brief, um, funny synopsis of Hetty and her life, uh, you can watch uh, the um, season six of Drunk History. <laughs> and I think she's on like, you know, it's one of the first episodes, like episode two, maybe. Um, but it's definitely on season six and uh, pretty funny. The I forget. I, I, I forget the 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 lady that was telling it, but she was funny. So you should check that out. Who plays Hedy Lamar? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. No, I was just thinking about the chick that was telling the story, and I can't remember <laughs> what her name is right now. <laughs> um, I mean, Derek Waters is the other guy, of course, but um, no, I can't remember. No, I don't remember who played Hetty, but whoever did play Hetty looked amazing. Like they did a, she, they made her really look like her. So, yeah. You should check that one out if you want to have yeah, have a little really brief synopsis with, you know, some little chuckles. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, yeah. Oh, and she, you know, does definitely have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And she got that in 1960. And um, at Hollywood and Vine is where her star is. Um, so yeah. The location. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention a couple of things. Um, her, her last name, well, of course, Hetty, you know, we know her, her real name was not, was not that, not Lamar, but, um, Hetty comes of course from Hedwig. Um, just one D I kept writing it with two D's in my notes, but it's not, it's just one D H E D Y. Um, L-A-M-A-R-R. And the Lamar part is actually in homage to a beautiful silent film star, and her name was Barbara Lamar. And that was Louis B. Mayer's wife's idea that, that she should change her last name to Lamar. Um, and I forgot to mention, too, I'm sorry. I'm just looking back at my notes now, but this is the last thing. Um, <laughs> she... She um, she dated the also very legendary Howard Hughes um, for a while, and he was one of her biggest supporters in her inventions. Go figure. Yeah. Um, he, he, yeah. He's he knew that she had a knack for inventing, and he actually told her she was a genius, and he put her he put his. Um, any staff that he had in kind of those areas, like technological advancements, scientists, he put them all all in her corner, so at her disposal. So while she was with him, you know, I think she she did try to to make some strides. 
And she even suggested that he change the square shape of his airplane to a more streamlined shape. And that was just based on pictures that she found of the fastest birds and fish. So she told him that would be more aerodynamic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she was, she was a smart cookie and, um, not just another pretty face, dime a dozen Hollywood beauty. She was, um, you know, very essential to, uh, our modern day of life. So, uh, kind of strange, like I said, her later years, (laughs) but, um, you know, I read one thing where her son, Anthony said that, um, after she was, you know, receiving these awards after her death, posthumously, I can't even say it right now. Posthumously. Posthumously. (laughs) After she was receiving those, um, that her son said that, um, she would be so happy to know that she was contributing to the world in a positive way that, that, that was really important to her. And, um, so I think that's what I'll, I'll leave us with. And then I will also say that I got most of my information from Smithsonian magazine online and, uh, Wikipedia, of course, and, uh, womenshistory.org. But, um, you know, you should also check out the Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story documentary to get a more comprehensive view of who she was. But um, yeah, she was a really remarkable woman and very worthy of, you know, acknowledgement. So yeah, that's what I got. Awesome. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. My pleasure. Thanks again for telling us about the wonderful, brilliant, and beautiful Hedy Lamar. Yes, of course. I'm going to talk about someone who is also brilliant and beautiful. I'm going to talk about Augusta Ada Lovelace, oh. also known as Augusta Ada King. Or Countess of Lovelace. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Which Mm. I would love to be known as Countess of Lovelace. That sounds like... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she sounds like like a made-up character, but she was a real person. Um, So... Uh, so I got most of my information from Wikipedia, like always biographics, which is a great YouTube channel, which is where I first, uh, heard about, uh, Ada Lovelace and, uh, Ted talk from Zoe Philippot, who is also a, uh, computer programmer. And she does a one woman show about Ada Lovelace. Mm where she wears a dress that she designed and created some of the technology for that is like an LED dress. And her show is like interactive with the dress and it lights up and like tells the story along as she, along with her telling the story and she like controls the show with her glove. It's really interesting. Wow. Um, So if, uh, I don't know if she's touring or if that's a show that, 
you could still see, but I watched her TED talk about Ada Lovelace and about her one woman show and uh, female computer programmers because Ada Lovelace is known as one or the actually the first computer programmer and she lived in the mid 1800s mm, wow so uh ada lovelace her mother was Anne isabella noel byron and if that last name sounds familiar to you then uh yes it is and she went by annabella lovelace for most of her life um but uh, Annabella Isabella Noel Byron was the 11th Baroness of uh, Wentworth and uh, nicknamed Annabella and commonly known as Lady Byron. And she was an English mathematician, highly educated and a strictly religious woman who was married for a short time to her exact polar opposite, a man named lord byron Byron, i was yes. gonna say gordon uh lord gordon byron right wow. is his first name i didn't write that down but i'm pretty sure it is yeah yeah who is the father of ada ada lovelace so lord byron uh is one of the leading figures of of the romantic movement byron byron is regarded as one of the greatest english poets and Lord Byron was also a philanderer, and uh, he was bisexual, which was frowned upon at the time. Mostly nowadays, he's frowned upon for his uh, womanizing, his basically his rebellious nature, his lack of self control um and for all around being a not great person um <laughs> so lord byron's name mostly comes up at for for his his poetry his like out of control yeah. lifestyle drinking out of human skulls partying Dang. and yeah uh you heard me correct partying <laughs> but one of his parties was very famous. He invited his friends, the Shelleys, Percy and Mary Shelley, over to his uh, estate over one weekend, and they were reined in, and they were supposed to tell each other ghost stories, and this is the weekend that Mary Shelley came up with the idea and story of uh, the modern Prometheus, which is Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... That's where his name's going to come up a lot uh, when you hear about Lord Byron. Mm. I would love to do a whole episode on him, but I don't want to get too much into his whole story because this isn't about him. Because <laughs> uh, because he played a very, very small role in Ada Lovelace's life. Pretty much he... He... Uh, he... Uh, what is it? Helped her be conceived, and that was it. So, okay. and we're done. We're done with Lord Byron. Okay. <laughs> so, Ada Lovelace was born 
on December 10th, 1815. Uh, Lord Byron uh, expected his child to be a glorious boy and was disappointed when Lady Byron gave birth to a girl. Also, Ada Lovelace is Lord Byron's only uh, only legitimate child. It's the only mm-hmm. child he had while he was married, although he was, I believe, married a few other times, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, We'll do, we'll do an episode on him. <laughs> this isn't about him. So no. the child was named after Byron's half-sister, Augustus Lay, and was called Ada by uh, Byron himself. On January 16th, 1816, at Lord Byron's command, Lady Byron left for her parents' home at Kirby Mallory, uh, taking their five-week-old daughter with her. Although English law at the time granted full custody of children to the father in cases of separation, Lord Byron made no attempt to claim his parental rights, but did request that his sister keep him informed of Ada's welfare. Um... On April 21st, Lord Byron signed the deed of separation, although very reluctantly, and left England for good a few days later. So he basically had five weeks after his daughter was born, he's out of her life. Aside from an acrimonious separation, Lady Byron continued throughout her life to make allegations about her husband's immoral behavior. This set of events made Lovelace infamous in Victorian society. Uh, Ada did not have a relationship with her father. He died in 1824 when she was only eight years old. Her mother was the only significant parental figure in her life. Uh, Lovelace was only shown the family portrait of her father when she was 20 years old. It is said that Ada, uh, Annabella, Ada's mother, actually kept picture of Lord Byron covered up with a cloth her whole life and that Ada was not allowed to look at it. Seems a bit extreme. Uh, (laughs) You know, yeah, yeah, that's not great. Um, (laughs) So Ada also did not have a close relationship with her mother. Uh, She was often left in the care of her maternal grandmother, Judith, uh, Lady Milbank, uh, and uh, Judith, Lady Milbank, uh, doted on her. Uh, however, because of societal attitudes of the time, which favored the husband in separation uh, with the welfare of any child acting as a as mitigation, Lady Byron had to present herself as a loving mother to the rest of society. So she had to put on this act of that she cared for her child, even though she didn't, um, or else she would have lost her social rank and been looked down upon um although she did not i feel like she had feelings for ada because of who lord byron was and she was like oh this is his child you know because he was such a bad person yeah Um, so uh this included writing anxious letters to Lady Milbank about her daughter's welfare with a covered note saying to retain the letters in case she had to use them to show maternal concern. So basically, basically she wrote letters with the idea that these letters could be used to show that she gave a shit. Uh, 
you know, like I'm writing these letters. So there's proof that I care, but that's it. In one letter, Lady Milbank, uh, in the one letter to Lady Milbank, she referred to her daughter as it. And quote, I talked to Lady Byron. uh, Wait, I talked. Oh, no. Okay. And quote. Sorry, fix that in post. Uh, And quote, (laughs) I talked to it for your satisfaction, not my own. And she'll be very glad when you have it under your own. Ew. That is how she referred to her daughter. So, uh, Lady Byron had her teenage daughter watched close by friends for any signs of moral deviation. Lovelace dubbed these observers as the Furies and later complained they exaggerated and invented stories about her. Basically, she didn't want her daughter to end up being like her dad you know and had her friends watch her and the friends exaggerated stuff about her this all sounds like a bad situation so yeah totally so although her mother was a distant figure in her life uh annabella uh implied imply implied sorry why can't i pronounce it implied some of the greatest intellectual minds to to employed that's why because i didn't Sorry, I typed this today. Annabella. So, okay, let's start over. Although her mother was a distant figure in her life, Annabella employed some of the greatest intellectual minds to tutor her daughter, including physician William King, which later on, Ada marries a man named William King. It's not the same William King, just for the record. Uh, Social reformer William Friend and Scottish astronomer, mathematician, and the first woman to be admitted to the Royal Astronomical Society, Mary Somerville, whom Ada would develop a close friendship with. So the reason, though, that Annabella was trying to have Ada be so intellectual was because she wanted Ada to be the antithesis of her father, who was a poet and an artist and, you know, a rebel. She wanted... You know, Annabelle was a mathematician herself. She wanted her daughter to be, uh, you know, focused on her, you know, schooling and not to have any sort of outside creativity whatsoever. Um, Ada was taught algebra, geometry, history, literature, uh, several languages, geography, music, sewing, and shorthand an extensive education that was unusual for women at the time. Although with these lessons, her mother also wanted her to learn self-control and would make her lie still for long periods of time, which sounds crazy to me. Kind of reminds me of, like, have you ever seen, um, oh, God, uh, Hairspray, where the mom, like, ties her daughter to the bed? Yes. Being too rebellious? That's what I'm thinking Penny Kingleton, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. So Ada thrived. Her She was brilliant. She thrived in these studies. She actually liked education. So when Ada was 12 years old, after a tour of Europe, she became obsessed with birds and decided she wanted to fly, which is really cool what you said about Howard Hughes and Hedy Lamarr. Uh, this is definitely a parallel to that. So she she decided she wanted to fly. 
uh, Ada Byron went about the project methodically, went a lot about the project methodically uh, thoughtful and thoughtfully with imagination and passion. Her first step, which was in February 1828, was to construct wings. She investigated different materials and sizes. She considered various materials for the wings, paper, oil silks, wire, and feathers. She examined the anatomy of birds to determine the right proportion between the wings and the body. She, uh, She also decided to write a book, which was entitled Flyology, illustrating uh, with plates some of her findings. Uh, She decided what equipment she would need, for example, a compass to cut across the country by the most direct road so that she could surmount mountains, rivers, and valleys. Her final step was to integrate steam with the art of flying. Uh, and quote, this is a quote from her, I've got a scheme to make a thing in the form of a horse with a steam engine in the inside so contrived as to move an immense pair of wings fixed on the outside of the horse in such a manner as to carry it up into the air while a person sits on its back. So she's trying at 12 to, in the 1800s, to invent a flying machine. At 12? Wow. Wow. At 12 years old. You know, she's she's pretty brilliant, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and creative, even though her mother did not push her to have creativity of her own. She is, you know, so Ada Byron at 17 in 1832, she uh, became ill. Sorry, I keep going back and forth between saying Lovelace and Ada Byron. They're the same person. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so uh, she she was often ill, beginning in her early childhood. At the age of eight, she experienced, oh, sorry. Yeah, she experienced headaches that obscured her vision. So in June of 1829, she was paralyzed after bout, a bout of measles. Place was often ill, beginning in her early childhood. At the age of eight, she experienced headaches that obscured her vision. In June of 1829, she was paralyzed after a bout of measles. She was subjected to continuous bed rest for nearly a year, something which may have extended her period of disability. But by 1831, she was able to walk with crutches. Despite the illness, she developed her mathematical and technological skills. And uh at age 18, she was feeling better and she was presented at court. So uh, that was a thing that needed to be done if you were going to enter the world of society. I guess you would be presented as an adult to society so that eventually you would get married off, you know, was the whole idea. But she like does. A deb- yeah. Mm-hmm. What's that? Oh, I was going to say like a debutante. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So although she was ill, you know, which in a lot of cases, if you were ill, you would not be able to be presented at court. The longer you wait, you kind of lose your window of opportunity to do so. So she was able to be presented at court when she was 17. 
uh, and she charmed the attendees with her brilliant mind. And in 1833, Ada was among a select group to attend a coveted party hosted by Charles Babbage, known today as the father of computers. Yeah. He was, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, one of the three qualifications for those to be invited was intellect, beauty, or rank, which wow. Ada had all three of those. Yeah. Yeah, she did. She was such a <laughs> At the party, Babbage unveiled a small part of his latest machine, a massive mechanical calculator known as the Difference Engine. A revolutionary design, and this is where I'm going to start talking about stuff I don't know anything about. So, <laughs> um, a revolutionary design, fully constructed, and would perform the work of an army of men crunching numbers. The machine would be powered by steam and it would meth methodically, there's that word again, methodically <laughs> perform complex calculations using only uh, addition by breaking it into smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, no, the method, oh, known as the method of finite differences. Uh, then it would print out the values into a table, which I'm guessing is like a piece of stone or wood or on a tablet. Hmm. Um, Babbage's machine had an enormous potential in the 19th century since tables were used in many areas, including navigation, astronomy, and engineering. Maybe it doesn't mean that literal, maybe it means like timetable. I don't know. Hmm. See, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I hope that for <laughs> someone listening. It, it Basically, this is like a very accurate calculator for crunching numbers. Uh, and there would be no human error to this calculator because it was a machine. Right. So uh, the accuracy was within 30, uh, 31 decimal places. To many of the guests that night, uh, Babbage's invention was little more than a party favor, but Ada saw something more. She fully understood its capability. Um, one of the guests said, would say later on about Ada, uh, when most guests looked on with the expression that savages show on seeing a looking glass, Miss Byron, young as she was, understood its working and saw the great beauty of the invention. So Charles Babbage was impressed with Ada's enthusiasm for his machine. And from that night on, he remained her mentor and her friend. Hmm. Um, Babbage's difference engine would not come to fruition, though. So he, at the party, he only showed like a small piece of it. He did have uh, drawings of what the whole machine would do and its capabilities. Um, but it would never be fully built because he ended up having a disagreement with the engineer, Joseph Clement, um, who had helped him make the drawings. Probably he probably actually drew them himself, Joseph Clement. And technically at this time, technically Joseph Clement would own the drawings because that's how the law worked at the time. 
and uh, they had a falling out and Babbage could not get the drawings back. So this forced Babbage, uh, forced Babbage to, um, to back out of his original concept and he came up with an even better idea in 1884, which he called the analytical engine. And here I will talk more about things I don't know anything about, <laughs> uh, which is considered to be the world's first programmable general purpose computer. The basic construction of the machine is similar to the modern day computer. Of course, his, uh, his machine would have been massive in scale. Have you ever seen computers from like the 60s? Yeah. They're gigantic. Just like, so, yeah, they fill a whole room, right? Yeah. yeah. So his was basically the same thing because this is this is his idea to create this was like massive in scale. Oh, yeah. uh, so his entry level machine would have been 45 feet long by 15 feet high. But he talked about others that would be 10 times that size. Mm. In his lifetime, only a small trial engine would be constructed. Ada became uh, Babbage's protege. After Babbage showed her plans for the analytical engine, she eagerly went on tour the went on tours of cotton mills in the north of England to see the most technologically advanced machine of the day, the Jacquard loom. So that was the piece of that piece was like a huge deal at the time. The loom, which was basically like a machine that would uh, weave intricate patterns uh, into, you know, wool or fabric or any sort of silk, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, a machine that automated uh, the a machine that automated the waving of patterned silk and was controlled by a series of punch cards. Uh, this did not require the work of skilled workers to make intricate patterns, which also made it very controversial, like how we kind of today feel like the machines are taking our jobs. This was literally what was happening at that time. This jacquard loom took the way, away the jobs of skilled workers. So groups such as the Luddites protested against the use of the machine. But Ada was deeply interested in the genius behind the punch cards. She wasn't really interested in like that aspect of it of like, oh, how can these machines replace people? She's like, what can we do with this idea of these punch cards that help translate these patterns into, you know, into the idea of punch holes, mm -hmm. you know? So... She wanted to know how men were to translate the complex patterns into something simple. Uh, she later wrote, the analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. Mm. So on July 8th of 1835, she married uh, William the Eighth Baron King um, sorry. So William King, the eighth Baron, uh, da, 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 becoming Lady King. Uh, they had three children, which she named Byron after her father, 
Anne Isabella, named after her mother, and Ralph Gordon, who was also named after her father. Uh, immediately after the birth of Annabella, Lady King experienced a tedious and suffering illness, which took months to cure. She focused all of her energy on learning everything she could about the analytical engine. And here's another quote from her. She says, I think I am more determined than ever in my future plans, and I have quite made up my mind that nothing must be suffered to interfere with them. I intend to make such arrangements in the town as will secure me a couple of hours daily with, a, with few ex exceptions for my studies. So even though she got sick again, she was very, very focused on learning more about this analytical engine and what she could use it for in the future. Oh. So uh, in 1840, Babbage was invited to give a seminar at the University of Turin about his analytical engine. Luigi Minabra, a young Italian engineer, and apologies to all Italians out there for massacring, massacring that name, uh, a young Italian engineer and future prime minister of Italy transcribed Babbage's lecture into French, and this transcript was subsequently published in the Biblioteca Universale de Geneva. I did my best there. Pretty good. Uh, in October of 1842, Babbage's friend Charles Wheatstone, 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 Charles Wheatstone, <laughs> Ada Lovelace to translate uh, Manabra's paper into English. She then augmented the paper with notes, which were added to the translation. So she was commissioned to translate basically Babbage's seminar from uh, French into English, but she mm. decided she was going to add all of her own ideas and research. So Ada spent the better part of a year doing this, assisted with, the, with input from Babbage. So these notes are more extensive than Manabra's paper. Were They were then published on September of 1843, uh, 1843's edition of Taylor's Scientific Memoirs under the initials AAL. So now she is a published uh, computer programmer. Um, so uh, Ada Lovelace's notes were labeled alphabetically from A to G. Note G, she describes an algorithm for the analytical engine to compute Bernoulli numbers, which I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure someone listening does. Uh, it is considered to be the first published algorithm ever specifically tailored for implementations on a computer. And Ada Lovelace has often been cited as the first computer program programmer for this reason. The, in, the engine was never completed, so her program was never tested. Note G also contains Lovelace's dismissal of artificial intelligence. She wrote that the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. It can follow analysis, 
but has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truth. This objection has been the subject of much debate and rebuttal. Uh, for example, by Alan Turek in his paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. So she's talking about AI like way back then. I was going to you know? say, wow. Yeah. Ellen Turing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Lovelace and Babbage had a minor falling out when the papers were published uh, when he tried to leave his own statement criticizing the government's treatment of his engine as an unsigned preface, which could have been mistakenly interpreted as a joint declaration. Uh, when Taylor's scientific memoirs, memoirs ruled that the statement should be signed, Babbage wrote to Lovelace asking her to withdraw the paper. This was the first that she knew he was leaving it unsigned and she wrote back refusing to withdraw the paper. Um, his, so the historian Benjamin Woolley theorized his actions suggested that he had so enthusiastically sought Ada's involvement and so happily indulged her because of her celebrated name. Hmm. So their friendship recovered and they continued to correspond. Uh, in 1841, Lovelace and Medora Lay, the daughter of Lord Byron's half-sister, Augusta Lay, were told by Ada's mother that Ada's father was also Medora's father. So then in 1841, the scandal comes out that basically her half-sister is... Uh, from an ancestral relationship between Byron and her. Uh, yeah. There's also other scandals. There's a lot more scandals that Lita <laughs> was involved with because of her dad and other various things. Yeah. On February 27th, 1841, Ada wrote to her mother, I'm not the least astonished. In fact, you merely confirmed what I have for years and years felt scarcely a doubt about, but should have considered it most improper in me to hint to you that I in any way suspected. She did not blame the incestual relationship on Byron, on Lord Byron, but instead blamed Augusta Lay. Uh, she says, I fear she is more inherent inherently wicked than he ever was. Uh, in So in the 1840s, Ada flirted with scandals, firstly from a relaxed approach to extramarital relationships with men, leading to rumors of affairs, and secondly, from her love of gambling. She apparently lost more than $3,000, which is a lot, 3,000 pounds, sorry, this is England, which probably a lot of money in the 1850s Yeah, on horses during uh, on horses. Sorry. During the late, the later 1840s, the, the gambling led to her forming a syndicate with male friends and an ambitious attempt in 1851 to create a mathematical model for her successful large bets. This went disastrously wrong, leaving her thousands of pounds in debt to the syndicate, forcing her to admit, admit all of this to her husband. So 
Yeah. <laughs> Not her brush, her most shining moment here. Uh, so on August 12, 1851, she, uh, when she was dying of cancer, so she became sick again and she had cancer this time. Uh, Lovelace wrote to Babbage asking him to be her executor, uh, though this letter did not give him the necessary legal authority. Um, so she ended up, you know, touching base with Babbage again, trying to get him to be basically the executor of her estate um, and her affairs. So Lovelace died at the age of 36 on uh, November 27th, 1852 from uterine cancer. The illness lasted several months in which time Annabella took command over whom Ada saw and excluded all of her friends and confidants. Under her mother's influence, Ada had a religious transformation. Boo. Sorry. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Uh, and was coaxed into repenting of her previous conduct and making Annabella her executor. She lost contact with her husband after confessing something to him on August 30th, which caused him to abandon her bedside. So maybe she did have an affair. Maybe there was more to this gambling business. Who knows? Yeah. It is not known what she told him. She was buried at her request next to her father, Lord Byron, at the Church of St. Mary Magdalene in Huckle, Nottinghamshire. Nottinghamshire. Uh, sounds very British. Nottinghamshire. Uh, a memorial plaque written in Latin to her and her father is in the chapel attached to Horsley Towers. Uh, in 1953, more than a century after her death, Ada Lovelace's notes on Babbage's analytical engine were republished as an appendix to B.V. Bowen's Faster Than Thought, a synopsis on digital computing machines. The engine has now been recognized as an early model for a computer and her notes as a description of a computer and software. The computer language Ada created on behalf of the United States Department of Defense was named after Lovelace. The reference manual for the language was approved on December 10th, 1980 and the Department of Defense military standard for the language MIL-STD-1815 was given the number of the year of her birth. So I know a lot of people out there probably use Ada and know what that is. I have no clue what that is, but I'm so glad that it is being used and it is an honor to her. Um, in 1981, the Association for Women in Computing inaugurated its Ada Lovelace Award. Since 1998, the British Computer Society has awarded the Lovelace Medal and in 2008, initiated an annual competition for women students. BCS Women sponsors the Lovelace Colloquium 
an annual conference for women undergraduates. Undergraduates. Ada College is a further education college in Totem Hale, London, focused on digital skills. So this is like her legacy here, you know, yeah. of her in uh, uh, in modern times. And the Ada Love Lace Day is an annual event celebrated on the second Tuesday of October, which began in 2009. Its goal is to raise the profile of women in science, technology, engineering, and math, and to create new role models for girls and women in, the, in these fields. Events have included Wikipedia edit-a-thons with the aim of improving the representation of women on Wikipedia in terms of articles and the editors to re reduce unintended gender bias on Wikipedia. The Ada Initiative was a nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing the involvement of women in the free culture and open source movements. And that is the very interesting story of Ada Lovelace, the first ever computer programmer. Wow. Yeah. So, fascinating. Yeah, she she is fascinating. Oh, and if you look up a picture of her, like I hate to sound superficial, but she is also stunning and her yeah. hair is amazing and she looks so so much like a countess of lovelace yeah. like if you were to imagine what the countess of lovelace should look like she she is it you know okay i'm looking it up right now yeah. oh yeah when i typed in ada lovelace by the way uh one of the options was ada lovelace gin just so you know. Ooh, <laughs> I, did I not know about that? I don't know if it's Why a is that not in my liver right now? <laughs> I don't know if it's a gym name, gin. I can't even speak anymore. I have not drunk any gin, by the way. <laughs> but I mean, right now. But I don't know if that's um, a gin that was named for her or like maybe she liked gin. But mm. let's see Wait, it didn't come up again. Ada Lovelace. Jen. Wait, Jen. I also know there's a comic book, apparently, out there where Ada Lovelace is a character alongside a young Mary Shelley. Okay. Uh, or vice versa. I can't, I don't know. But I did read that about pop culture references of Ada Lovelace. Um, I don't. I do not know if there is a drunk history on Ada Lovelace, although it would be fascinating. Oh wait, but like I have to say, the that that story that, or I mean, the the part of the story that you were telling at your opening, that that reminded me. I think there is one because we there watched on, it recently. Yeah, there is on Lord Byron. I on know. Lord Byron, right? The, With, the Mary Shelley weekend. Yes. Okay, so, but Ada Lovelace wasn't in that, huh? No. Okay. No. Just okay. Byron. Sadly. I know, and it was Jack McBrayer, wasn't it? He in that one? And, um, um the dude oh, yeah. from 30 I Rock? Remember. I think it was him. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Well, anyway, it was a good one. But yeah, no, no Ada in there. Yeah. Oh, well. She deserves more really, credit. There's a really good movie about Mary Shelley with Elle Fanning that I've seen that I thought oh. was really good. Okay. Yeah. Just saying, just putting that out there. 
nothing to do with Ada Lovelace, just a tangent to go off of. Wow, I had no idea that she was the daughter of Lord Byron, though. Yeah. God. I mean, he wasn't really there a lot. Well, yeah. Other than to, like, scorn the mother. Just just in name, (laughs) I guess, but yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my uh, story about uh, Ada Lovelace. So, yeah. Another brilliant woman. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting when talking about the Ada thing, like people are putting it in like it like futuristic movies or video games where they make the AI's name Ada or something. Like yeah. Like, yeah. You know, that's definitely a common. Yeah. Maybe it's an homage to her. Yeah, possibly. Anyways, uh, I'm gonna wrap this one up. So thank you all for listening to our newest episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Please follow us on Instagram. I think we still have a Facebook. Email us at Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast at gmail.com with any ideas you might have. And listen to our other podcasts for more weird stories that aren't exactly Hollywood related. The new podcast is called My weird little podcast because it is my weird little podcast or maybe our our weird little podcast but it's called my weird little podcast and yes. uh, we kind of get into more depth of other stories that are not hollywood related and we will be posting in there probably more often than this podcast but we have not forgotten about you we still care oh, how and next we- week we'll be in san diego We'll be on a real uh, former movie set. We'll be at the Hotel Del Coronado where they filmed Some Like It Hot. And it'll be so exciting. <laughs> Maryland yeah. vibes. Yeah, exactly. God. Maybe Not we'll really. talk to the ghost of Maryland. Oh, my God. I would. I would. I, I was about to say I would die, but yeah. I wouldn't die. I would just be transfixed i don't know (laughs) i'm open to anything (laughs) yeah Uh, i'm open to anything just please no negative energy but you know it could happen so you should be prepared but (laughs) yeah yeah okay yeah (laughs) i'm I'm excited though yeah for sure We'll go to the Whaley house. We'll do all the San Diego things. So, yeah. And you guys are you guys are staying at like a definitely haunted hotel. <laughs> Just letting you know. Oh, Patrick's laughing maniacally. Yeah, I'm definitely going to bring some talismans. You know, I'm pretty something. sure our hotel has been like remodeled <laughs> and refurbished, but your hotel looks straight up. Your sister looks straight up from like the 1840s. Well, like, I'm... I'll bring some religious candles. I'm sure Roxana won't object. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm like, I'm like very curious about your hotel. So I'm like, <laughs> I might snoop around. So yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, stay spooky. Nope. Is that the sign off for this? What was our sign off? What was the sign off? I think, well, 
scaring is caring. Scaring. Oh, I was gonna say. <laughs> <Scary>. <laughs> Wasn't it that? We stopped doing that after. That's stupid. Peace out. Yes. All right. Peace out. Bye. Word to your mother. Word to your mother. All right. We'll just finish it there. That's good. That's good.